Father, there is something so deeply profound about joining our hearts together in song and praise. And then in that same unity to come to you in prayer. We are awestruck each time our simple requests are taken so seriously by you. And again and again we see the miracles that you perform. Not merely because we asked, but because of your grace and your mercy. And because you have invited us in, we thank you. Father, we are astonished, too, that you have built your church out of people like us. We, we know our limitations and deficiencies, and yet in some wondrous way, you have made us to be holy, to be the saints. And so, Father, we, we express our thanks to you and our, our deep appreciation for the, the provision of the church, for those who have gone before us and and for those who are with us on this way, may you be blessed by all we do and say. You, you have heard our requests. We've named them each one out loud. Uh, we pray for, for Professor Crane and for Doug and for Melissa. But we also bring other requests and needs to you that we've not named. And we ask that you would, by the very deep knowledge that you have of our hearts, hear each request we make even now and grant your wondrous touch to make the, the miracles happen that, that uh, astonish us each time. And now, Lord, would you open your word to us, make it clear, so that you might receive glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And if you would remain standing, I'm going to be reading from the, uh, from the third and fourth chapters of Matthew. Some of you may know that, uh, that I uh, like what I call bookend sermons. What, what that is is just a strange little name I've given to the fact that it's possible sometimes to find in Scripture uh, two verses of Scripture that are either exactly alike or very nearly alike, and, uh, and, and the story, if you will, the, the sermon is in between those. And much the same thing tonight. I'm going to be reading from uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then from chapter 4. Verse 17, I will be using the New American Standard Version, but you'll be able to follow easily in the version that you have with you. So, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then chapter 4, verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My theme tonight, preaching first things first. You may be seated. Well, I, uh, among the quirks, and I, and I sometimes feel I'm a bundle of quirks, among my quirks is the fact that I have a penchant for, for short, pithy statements, you know, the kind of thing which... The, the whole idea is to take a great big hunk of truth and just kind of jam-pack it down into a, to a small, short statement. And I, I practice that from time to time. In fact, the book of Stelting, as you know, is made up largely of those kind of quotes. Um, I, I use this sometimes for, uh, just to be kind of ornery, in, in fact, I, I suppose. In the second church I pastor, in that period of time when they were looking me over and I was looking them over, uh, we... Uh, 
we had one of those sessions where they were asking me questions, and they asked me about my preaching, and I, I said to them, oh, well, my preaching, I, uh, probably you might want to think twice about calling me to be your pastor because my preaching is rather limited. And I saw the question marks rise on their foreheads. And I said, I, I really only have three sermons. The first one is, you must be born again. The second one is, be filled with the Spirit. And the third one is, go ye therefore. Uh, and they looked at me and finally they realized what I was trying to say. And we had a, we had, I think we had a good laugh about it. I better remember back a little bit harder. But, but yeah, yeah, it was a little bit of honoringness. But it was also somewhat true, too, because in some ways those three sermons encompass much of what we all preach about in some way or other. I think I would add a fourth now, and that would be uh, worship the Lord your God in spirit and truth. I think I would add that one as a fourth. And that would just pretty well bring it all together. Short statements that have big truth. And I also like, um, I, I like sort of uh, big statements and big, profound discussions. My wife and I had a pair of those this morning. I, it, was, it was amazing. Here I was looking for something to talk about in my, in my opening remarks. And it, it happened like this. Uh, she, uh, she said, uh, darling, who took all your covers last night? And I said, oh, sweetheart. No one took them. I gave them willingly. <laughs> uh, and, and then I like ultimate questions, too. I, I think the real ultimate question, the first time I remember hearing it, was when I was in the fourth grade. Fourth, fourth grade was, uh, in, in my little bitty school, the fourth grade teacher was Mrs. Ellis. Everybody knew from the time you were in the first grade, that eventually, if your parents didn't have the wisdom to move, uh, that you would have to have Mrs. Ellis as your fourth grade teacher. Uh, and the only reason that you were willing to go through it is the fact that Mrs. Bell was the fifth grade teacher, and, and she would kind of, well, you, you, you had teachers like that, you, you, you know that. Well, Mrs. Ellis asked the question, the, the ultimate question. She said, uh, all right, we're starting a new study, and we're going to start by this answering this question, I want each of you to give me the answer to this question, what is the most important thing in life? Well now, uh, as a as a, as a nine-year-old, I, I knew what the proper answer was supposed to be. Something in my hair? It was? Yes. Uh, okay. I don't even want to look over there as you ask that. Now I, I I knew I knew what the proper answer was. I mean, she had just announced, in fact, that the new subject we were taking up was health, and so the proper answer to the question, "What's the most important thing in life?" is health. I, I knew that. I, I knew that. But well, I couldn't say that. I I toyed around with a number of questions, but then then I gave the the, the proper religious answer, and that was one was. God. No, it wasn't that. It was more squeaky than that. But it, it was the same word. Uh, it was the most important thing in life was God. Well, I, I know that's not what she was looking at, but she went right along and all of us got to answer one thing or another. But like I said, I knew what question she wanted. I just couldn't bring myself to give it. Um, 
two very good prerequisites for being an academic dean is to know what teachers want to hear and not being able to say it. Uh, but that's, that's okay. It was, it was an important thing. Now, later that day, I, I distinctly remember uh, going to my philosophy room, uh, the, the, the boys' restroom, where, where I would take my comb and I would run under the water and comb my hair. Uh, when you're a fourth grade boy, about the only time that hair will stay in place for any length of time at all is when it's sopping wet. And, and I, I, I remember doing that and asking myself the question, you know, I, I wonder if she meant the most important or if she meant something else because one of the questions I had dealt with was saying, one of the answers I had dealt with was saying, um, breathing. <laughs> because, you know, if you, if you stop breathing for about two minutes or so, all the other big important things don't mean anything <laughs> anymore after that. And... Uh, it wasn't until I got in college that I, I began to realize there was a difference between those things that are immediate and those things that are ultimate. So I, I say all this because I, I'm preaching tonight about repentance. I, I want you to understand that repentance is probably not an ultimate sort of discussion. But it's very immediate. Uh, repentance is not in itself the thing that's going to, that's going to save you. But the whole subject is so very important. In fact, in fact, when we read this story about John the Baptist and Jesus, well, let me give it to you very quickly. John the Baptist suddenly showed up on the scene preaching. And his sermon, or at least his, his theme was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then later, Jesus came and was baptized by him. Then Jesus went into the... In, into the wilderness to be tempted and, and, and fast. And then, and then after that, it says that Jesus then came and preached exactly the same message, or, or the same theme at least. I, I, I don't think that every sermon was entitled Repentance. But certainly it was there. It was just, it was just built into to what both of these men preached. John the Baptist, the forerunner, and Jesus our Lord. It was there. It, 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 it is so immediate. It, Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it. Luke talks about it. You can't just push it aside and say, well, that's a, that's a convenient first sermon. There's something at the heart of this that we need to get at. And I don't know if I can give it to you. I, 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 I guess we could talk about word meanings, but Dr. Powers can do a much better job than that. I, I can't even pronounce metaneo, metanal, close, close, close enough to be recognizable. Uh, and, and, and all of this, but, but when you look and see this, certainly the Jewish people must have had some recognition of the idea of repentance. It was built into the Old Testament. But as we see the impact of this, and that's how I want to preach to you tonight, not so much about the, uh, about the word study, but, but how, does it, how does it strike you? I, I've been fascinated recently with, with the use of metaphor, and so I'm going to use three metaphors tonight if you would give me that privilege to try to talk about why in the world repentance might have been so immediate at this time. First of all, the first metaphor has to do with old-fashioned kingdoms. And the metaphor is that repentance is the coin of the realm. That's fancy words. 
somewhere about 600 years before the time of Christ, uh, the, a group of people called the Ladeans invented money. Bless them. Uh, we have been struggling with the concept of money ever since. To them, it was just coins that they, they struck out of hard metal and it became a medium of exchange. Money really is an idea that we agree about in terms of value, except that we can't all agree about it and it doesn't last very long, but that's okay. It is that. The, the point is, is the fact that if you're going to get around in our society, you have to have money. Maybe you don't have very much of it, but you've got to have some. Everything you want, almost everything you want, is going to cost money. If you want to talk to some people, you've got to have money. I'll, I'll remind you that the next time some of you want to come by and stop in and visit with me. I, here it is. It, it, is the, it is the coin of the realm. It is the one thing that everybody carries just to make life work. And I would submit to you that in some profound way, repentance is the coin of the realm. Essentially, any work of grace in our, in, our, in our lives, when we want God to do something for us, it takes repentance. It takes repentance. Uh, now, I know that there are several things about repentance, and this is the first one. There's, there is something about people coming to God, and if you come to Him in any attitude other than in repentance, you're failing to come to Him with the right attitude. Repentance is the coin of the realm. In uh, Mark chapter 1, when Mark was talking about the same incident, he said this, uh, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There is this, this constant marrying of the idea of repentance and confession. When our hearts are repentant, there is always confession happening. It was the, the sign of the kingdom that people were saying, I'm sinner. I am. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When we need and want God's touch in our lives, when we come to Him, there must be this openness to Him that says, look inside, here I am, the real me. Don't go past this. I bring myself to you. It's, it's, it's important, you see, because we firmly believe that there is no work, there is no merit that we can bring to God that would persuade Him to forgive us. But amazingly enough, the coin of the realm is repentance. Here I am. I am so sorry. My heart is broken. You have seen, and so have I, that someone will adamantly hold to their innocence until finally God breaks in and they break down and they say, Oh my, I am so wrong. 
God, forgive me. In that moment of repentance and confession, God is able to touch. And the coin of the realm has been, has been what made it happen. Repentance. Uh, second metaphor. Um, so sorry to hear that Professor Crane and others of our, of our family have been, uh, have, have been hurting. So it was, it was important for us to understand that, that repentance is, is the incision for the surgery of God's work in our lives. Now, now follow with me on this one. Professor Crane did not go into the hospital saying, you know, I think it would be nice to get cut on a little bit. Okay? When I've had surgery, and I've had too many of them, uh, that's not what I went in there for. What I went in there for was to have the bad things removed. The incision was necessary. Repentance does not save anyone. It does not save anyone. God saves. The blood of Jesus Christ saves. But the application for that, the work of God must be preceded by repentance. There must be that openness that comes and says, Here, as painful as it is, open me up and take it out. Uh, remember in the story of, of, uh, of John the Baptist, he said everyone was coming out to John the Baptist for, for, for repentance, the baptism for repentance. And so much so that some other guys came out. I can almost hear them in the morning. They say, hey, one Pharisee said to another, or one Sadducee said to another, hey, guys, John the Baptist is out here, and he is preaching away. Everybody's going out there. Let's see if we can get in on this. This could be, this could be really good. And after all, we're the spiritual leaders of this community. If this is what they think should be done, let's go on out there and do it. I am certain that it must have been a cavalier attitude on their part, because when they came... John the Baptist pointed his finger at them and said, You brood of vipers. I like that. Don't, don't try that in your first Sunday school lesson. Don't try that. You are not John the Baptist. Not yet anyway. You brood of vipers, he said, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Go and bring back fruit fit for repentance. And then he implied, then, then I will baptize you. But he didn't have to finish that because he knew that they would go and not come back. Oh, maybe some did, but, but that kind of discouragement drives at the heart of it, you see. Because God must work a work that is sometimes painful if we're going to have healing and cleansing in our lives. We know that. We know that. And repentance is part of that work. We used to have a statement that said, uh, Confession without repentance is testimony. Confession without repentance is testimony. I, I like that. What, what we were trying to say is, You better be sincere about this, and you better change. But let me tell you that repentance without confession is empty religion and is not sufficient for God. They must go together. Well, let me move on. Third, third metaphor. And, and this one's going to take some work. So, One of the, one of the great 
joys that I had in life was uh, learning to fly an airplane. Uh, it, it cost money, and my wife agreed to let me do this. Um, and she's usually pretty good about these sorts of things. I, I know she's shaking her head in the background, but she said, yeah, go ahead and do this. So I learned to fly an airplane. One of the things that happens in, in the process of learning to fly an airplane is that you must, you must learn to fly under the hood. Now, the hood is a thing you put on your head, and it's like a long-billed baseball cap, sort of, except it wraps around. And what it is is when you're sitting in the cockpit of an airplane, you cannot see out the windows either ahead of you or to the side. The only thing you can see is, is the instruments. That's all you can see. And so uh, the, the, the thing goes like this. The instructor says, close your eyes. So you close your eyes. You're up in the air, and you feel the airplane go this way and that way and this way and that way and up and down and back and forth. The engine changes speed. And then uh, the professor says, hands off, open your eyes. What he meant by that is, I'm taking my hands off the, off the controls. Now you open your eyes. And the job is that you've got to look at the instruments only, analyze what the problem is, where you are, and fix it. Now here's the sticky part. No matter what he did while your eyes were closed, when he took his hands off and said, your airplane, everything feels just right. It's called the seat of your pants. Everything feels just right. You feel like you're flying straight and level and everything is fine. But you know, because your instructor is devious, you know that he has left you in a real pickle. And if you trust the seat of your pants, you will probably die. But if you trust the instruments, if you trust the instruments, and reject your own feelings. You can correct the attitude of the airplane and you can fly away and everything's going to be okay. And it's not just difficult, it is almost impossible the first few times to wrench yourself from the feelings of your seat of your pants and force yourself to go against what appears to be logical and all right and look only at the instruments. But when you learn to do it, when you learn to take the dependency from yourself and place your dependency on the instruments, you can live. Repentance is much like that, my friend. Repentance makes very little sense in the converting sense of the word. It means that we must sometimes pry our own fingers loose from our own dependency, our own death grip on the rope and say, I will not let go, I will hang on. And he says, let go, let go, let go. You may depend on me. And I assert to you today that all that is powerful and good in the kingdom is making certain that our dependency is on him and not on our own faults understanding of how it's supposed to work. Now, some people call that illogical. It is not. The illogical thing in the airplane would be to foolishly follow me and ignore the truth of the instruments. It is so very logical once you release your, your hands and turn yourself over into his hands, it is amazing how logical it all is.
because your presuppositions are now right. So, my conclusion, preach, teach, sing, counsel, play basketball, whatever you want to do for the glory of God, but make sure that the bedrock below all of that is repentance, a turning from ourselves to Him, an openness to let Him do what is necessary, not to fight His processes, but to put ourselves in line with them, and to make sure that we approach Him as regularly as possible with this in our hands, our repentance, our confession, our willingness to submit ourselves to Him. There's a final reason, too, to preach and teach and sing repentance. And that's a fact that we have all learned that it's the only way to arrange our own lives. Sometimes we just beat our heads up against a wall only to discover that we have taken ourselves back into our own hands. In those times, we need to be reminded again that repentance the power of the church is this attitude, the attitude of repentance. We're going to sing, and then I'll dismiss us from prayer.